Well, this morning we come back to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans in our Sunday school studies. And as I was saying, that the week went quickly. Um, Part of it is that we just had around this time of year so much to to get done. And and then in addition, um, hearing of the the death of Al Gaines. And uh, we went down yesterday to uh, be with Gene and the family and uh, church at uh, Lafayette. Patrick Harrison ministered the word of God. And um, saw some folks we haven't seen in many, many years. Uh, perhaps some of you remember when Jody used to come with her two little children, um, Paul and um, trying to think of the name of the girl. Just met us her yesterday. What is it? Heidi. Heidi. Yes, Paul and Heidi. How small they were. Now, I mean, Paul's a strapping. He must be six three at least. <laughs> and uh, Heidi's a, a grown woman and. Uh, uh, just to tell them I'm the, I'm the pastor that officiated at your folks' uh, wedding. We, we learned that um, a couple of things. Well, some of the people you don't know, a guy named Nick Vandegroof, who I, mean, I think I mentioned Wednesday night, also went to be with the Lord from the church in Lafayette, and that was a couple of months back, and we, we didn't hear about it. So we made strong entreaties to the folks down there to keep us informed, and hopefully in days to come they'll be able to do that. And then the, uh, the other thing we learned about is uh, Tom uh, Jody's uh, husband died uh, not uh, not too many months ago, and he at one time did attend here. I don't think he was ever in Christ, um, but um, you know he did hear the word of God when he was among us. And um, certainly, as we think of that family and we think of um, the children that were in this church for a bit of time, uh, pray for God's working in His in His grace in their hearts and lives. Let's turn to Romans 9. And you know, you mentioned Romans 9 to the average Christian who has any concept of the ways in which theological discussion and theological debate take place in the church. They probably say, oh no, oh no, we're getting into pathways of trouble because this is a controversial passage. This is a passage that is the debating ground for Calvinism versus Arminianism in particular. And if you don't know what those things mean, that's fine. You don't need to know what they mean. What we need to know is what Romans 9 teaches. That's what we need to know, not the theological debates and disputes. Although that's very interesting and it it can be informative. But sometimes it can be not just divisive, it can be pride-inducing. I think sometimes people come to these passages and they don't come to where Paul goes when he comes to the end of this passage and he says, and his his response to everything he's saying is, is doxology. It's, it's worship, it's praise, it's oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the riches of his, of his knowledge and his wisdom, how, how, how unsearchable are his paths and his ways past finding out. And there's a certain measure of humility that comes from considering the greatness of God, the puniness of our own brains, our own inability to, 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 you know, to, to know uh, much less determine and give orders to God about how we think he should run his world. I mean, we have to take our place with utter humility before the presence of God. And, and then, you know, there are some people, I remember when we first came to learn about the doctrines of grace and these, these things that get discussed in the church through the centuries, we used to say, what are you going to do? You're going you're to cut it out of the Bible? You take a scissor and cut it out of the Bible? It's there in the Bible. And, and, you know, we didn't do that nicely. We did that kind of in a challenging way. But, you know, we can read it only for what we're after. We're after a certain understanding of what we want to emphasize. And we're not really hearing the totality of what this passage is saying. Not only the fact that it comes at the end, at one end, with the note of humility, and that we don't know everything. You know, we, 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 who thinks he knows the ways of God? Who thinks he could trace out all the paths of God's counsel and God's wisdom? You know, if we're given some entry into some things about the ways of God, we come away saying there's so much more we don't know. So humility is the order of the day. And then on the front part of this whole section is the note of Paul's desire for the salvation of Israel. His heart is for them, not against them. He says, oh, well, Jacob God loved and Esau he hated, so who cares about the Jews anyway? Let's just go on with, uh, with us. No. His heart is filled with anguish at their unbelief. 
If every person that's trumpeting the doctrines of grace had their hearts filled with anguish over the plight of the unsaved, uh, then you can start talking about what this passage is teaching. But let's approach it in the way that Paul did, with his heart not against the, the lost, but towards the lost. Not looking to find ways to not preach to the lost, but finding ways to preach to the lost. Finding ways to pray for them. Finding ways to um, bring them the message of the gospel. Uh, and then to leave all the results of that whole work with, with God. Recognizing we're not going to be able by our cleverness to convert people. We can't change their hearts. God alone can do that. Um, so there's a great deal of benefit we can get from understanding this passage. We need to understand this passage. We need to understand it the way Paul wrote it. With um, love in his heart towards the lost. With uh, recognition that uh, whatever we know about God's ways with men, there's so much more we simply do not know. And um, then also we need to know the, this passage in the light of the fact that Paul quotes the Old Testament so often that there's just boodles, bunches of quotations he gives of um, Old Testament passages of Scripture. And what's the rule when we find an Old Testament passage of Scripture go, uh, quoted in the New Testament? What's the rule around here? What's that, Tim? I'm just trying to think. Yeah. We, we interpret it in light of the New Testament. Well, we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. But do we just say, okay, it's quoted in the New Testament, we see it in the light of the New Testament, and we end the discussion there? Thank you. Absolutely. You go back to the Old Testament to the context. Paul's taking a text from the Old Testament that he knows the wider context to it. And he's quoting it not just to get the little snippet out to prove a point. And sometimes the little snippet that he takes to prove his point, we take to make our point. <laughs> we take to turn it into our own point that Paul never anticipated and Paul never would have, would have agreed with. And so we need to go back to the Old Testament to see the context in which Paul is quoting these passages. So, having said those things, now let's get back into the text. And one of the things we tried to emphasize in previous messages is that the real key issue here has to do with divine faithfulness. God's word has not failed. God is a God who watches over his word to perform it. He is a God who is faithful to everything he has pledged himself to do. But sometimes we think he's pledged himself to do things that he never promised, things he's never pledged himself to do. We interpret perhaps God's statements in scripture our way rather than his way. And that's one of the important things that Paul's concerned to do. He wants to define biblical terms in biblical ways. And one of the great terms, of course, that you have to deal with with this whole question of Israel's unbelief is the very definition of what, who is Israel? Who's Israel anyway? Who are sons of Abraham? Who are the heirs of the promise? Is it everyone who is the physical progeny of Abraham sharing his DNA and uh, coming from his, uh, his uh, family tree? Well, no. <laughs> no. That's not Old Testament, and it's not true, of course, in the New Testament. In the old, Paul's statement is not um, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's a definition of Israel that is limited, even in the Old Testament. I think of the quotation from Psalm 73. I think we mentioned that. Surely God is good to Israel. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of Israel is the reason for my problem. <laughs> He's going to give this problem of his being envious of the wicked and that they are boastful in their life, they're comforted in their death, they live lives of ease and, uh, and uh, disregard to the law of God, they, they go their own way, they do their own thing, and they seem in so many ways, he's thinking, just looking at, his, at the situation in life, they look better off than I am, I'm plagued every day with the problem of my sins, I'm plagued every day with questions of moral right and wrong and how I might honor my God more, more, more fully, and maybe I've done all this in vain. Maybe I've cleansed my heart in vain. And again, he's not talking about the Gentiles. He's not talking about the nations. He's talking about his Israelite neighbors. His Israelite neighbors are the source of his problem. So maybe we've got to redefine what this Israel is. And he does it. 
when he says in Psalm 73 and verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, even to those who are pure in heart. God's goodness to Israel is, yes, to Israel, but to Israel biblically defined. What is Israel biblically defined? Well, those who are pure in heart. Or what Israel itself meant. Remember, Israel was the name that was given to Jacob, and Jacob meant supplanter. He was a supplanter. And then he becomes one who praises Yahweh. He becomes Israel, or praises El. He's a praiser of God. So it's those who are pure in heart, who praise God. There are those who are, have the spiritual realities that God offers to his, his, his true Israel. But the reality, the fact is that the blessings of God he offered, he placed on offer to Israel, they closed their hearts to. They had uncircumcised hearts. They didn't want anything to do with it. They were pleased with the God of Egypt, gods of Egypt. And so when they could, as soon as Moses is gone, they, they get Aaron to make a golden calf. We want, we want the gods of, of Egypt to serve. So they committed crime after crime, transgression after transgression, evil after evil. And all that evidence was the fact that they were like the gods they worshipped and served. They were stiff-necked, they were hard of heart, they were uncircumcised in heart. They were not the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God is not every descendant of Abraham and according to the flesh. The true Israel of God has a spiritual identity. They're the children of the promise, Paul says. And again, he goes back to those different generations where Abraham had other sons than Isaac, and yet none of them were included in the promises. I mean, there were promises that were given to Ishmael. You've got to recognize that. It's not as though Ishmael did not have his own promise from God. And again, I think that's how you have to read it in the context of the Old Testament. I think sometimes you think, well, God rejected Ishmael, he loved Isaac, he chose Isaac, and therefore God's hostility against the Ishmaelites was uh, complete and total and, uh, and full of bitterness and anger and, and wrath and displeasure. Uh, yet, it was Ishmael's mother, Hagar, that God sent angels to on two times, two points where she had to leave or flee. Uh, one time it was the fleeing for, the, for good. And both times angels were sent to provide for Hagar. Both times uh, promises were given that Ishmael would become a great nation. Now, again, it's a great nation whose hand is against all of his neighbors. It's sort of a warring uh, uh, thing, uh, hostility that he has to his neighbors. But uh, nonetheless, uh, God's continuing to remind the mother and even Abraham that I will make of Ishmael also a great nation. That Abraham is the father of many nations. And part of that is Ishmaelites. Part of that is Edomites, who were the sons of Esau. And remember, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And we might think again that idea that God hated Esau is that God had this bitterness, this distaste, this, this displeasure towards Esau. When, in fact, the context of the context of, of, of um, that statement, Jacob of I loved, Esau of I hated, is Malachi chapter 1. And it's not God speaking to the Edomites. It's God speaking to Israel. It's a dialogue that God is engaged in with the people of Israel. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in chapter 1, this is in confirmation of divine love to Israel that God speaks these words. For, again, if you know the, um, the opening section of Malachi, the statements are made in which the response is, how is this so? How is this true? Um, how have we failed to honor you with our offerings? How have we failed? How have we despised your, your name? There's this constant retort on the part of the people to assertions that God has made. And, and, and God allows them to make those objections and then gives answers to what those objections are. The first of these is this very thing about Jacob and Esau. God declares, I have loved you. 
<laughs> That's the message that God gives to the nation of Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, here's the retort. I mean, God's quoting them. How have I loved you? They're suspicious about divine love. They think maybe God hasn't loved us as well as he should have loved us because, hey, we've experienced the Babylonian captivity. We've experienced uh, displacement and hardship and maybe loss of ancestral lands. Even now we're under the authority of the Persian Empire. Where's God's love to me? How have I loved you? And God's answer is, is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Esau, loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And that's, that's evidence in this. I've laid waste his hill country, left his heritage to jackals of the desert. <laughs> if Edom says we are shattered, but we will re- rebuild the wound, ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Well, again, the promise that was given to Esau was that Esau was going to inhabit not a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was a mountainous land. It was a land that was going to be difficult to navigate. It provided some natural defenses against enemies that would attack them. That's why often they were, they were spared while Israel was attacked. You know, Mount Seor was uh, the place of Esau's dwelling. It was a mountainous region. And yet it was uh, a region that ultimately did get attacked by the Babylonians. It did, did, did get under the siege of other peoples and other empires. Um, and, 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 and they don't go around saying, well, how has the Lord loved us? Or where's the Lord in all of our troubles? They just say, let's, let's get up and build again. God says all their efforts to build again is not going to really do much because I'm going to tear it down anyway. Every nation, every people is going to experience being torn down. There's only one people that God says he has an eternal compact with, an eternal covenant with. This is the descendants of, of Abraham. Right? So, again, how, I mean, look at your neighbors, God could say to them. Uh, they're dwelling in mountainous regions and they're saying we're going to build the ruins and you're living in relative prosperity in the land that still is abounding and abundant and flowing with milk and honey I mean not that it didn't have its seasons of drought yes all that is part of the covenant curse against their disobedience but the point is they ought to have considered themselves so blessed that they weathered the storm of their own unfaithfulness when God sent them into captivity yes but in so, so doing dealt with them less than what their sins deserved he brought them back and yet they're still questioning his love they're still complaining about their own plight in their own situation God probably thinking I have more respect to the Edomites to so just get up and build what's been ruined even though it won't last than the Israelites who simply complain about whether God loves us or not when they got the promises that they've never entered into. They've closed their hearts to the promises of God. When God has said, I have loved you. And if God spoke through his prophet and said, I've loved you, what would your response be? Would it not be, bless you, Lord, thank you, Lord, praise you, Lord. I don't deserve the least of you. You love me? I can't get over that you just be overwhelmed with the sense of the reality of God's love towards you. But that's not how, even at this point, the nation is responding. And God has to remind them of the relative history of their own nation, so visited by divine mercy, so visited by divine grace. And what Edomite could look over their history and point to anything similar? Can any Edomite point to the, an exodus from bondage? Could point to mighty plagues that are brought against adversaries? Could the Edomites point to the opening up of the sea, bringing them out on dry land? Could the Edomites say, we dwell in a land that flows with milk and honey, and God's blessed us abundantly, he takes care of the, of, of the land and of the creatures, and they, they, they seek their, their daily food from God, and we have the, 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 the fig tree and the we have the uh, the olive trees and the fig trees and the just the blessings that God bestows so richly and abundantly upon us as His people, and we're questioning His love. Again, Esau I've hated is not that God never gave anything good to them 
for the God's general common mercies were not abounding even in the Edomite context and situation. But it's that the promises were given to Israel and God overlooked or God passed over the Edomites in terms of those distinctive covenant blessings that belong to them. But then when you think of the covenant blessings that belong to the Israelites for the, for, out of the love of God, it was to the sake that the Edomites ultimately would be blessed. That ultimately through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That all the nations of the earth would become the people of God. It's again not that God didn't care about Edomites ultimately. But the way Edomites would be reached is through the seed of Abraham. And of course the seed of Abraham ultimately is, is Jesus. And that's how the definition of Israel in the New Covenant gets, gets, um, gets reformulated. The understanding is different. Again, it's not a, a political nation. It's a spiritual nation. It's the people who have the faith of Abraham, who have the faith in Abraham's seed, who is the Lord Jesus himself. Not all who are of Israel after the flesh belong to the true Israel of God. It's those who are the seed according to the promise. And again, all this, Paul tells us, takes place as a result of God's electing love, of God's own choice, of God's own will, and of God's own purpose. But again, God's will and purpose doesn't, it's not so much exclusionary. Leave out this one, leave out that one, leave out that one. He doesn't want to argue that Israel's fall becomes the riches of the nations, becomes the gospel going to the nations. In every way that Paul sees this, you know, we tend to look at it as God leaving out this group, the God leaving out that group, God not. No, Paul says, no, no. This is God opening up doors. <laughs> this is God opening up doors. Don't look at it narrowly. Look at it through the eyes of what God has made known about his own will and ways. Don't try to reason it out. And just say, well, he, he hated Esau, and that means, you know, I have X, so that means Y and Z is also true. Maybe not. What you've concluded from those ideas are your conclusions, but it's not necessarily what God has declared. And what Paul seems to think is that all that is happening is not a negative thing, it's a positive thing. It's a thing that ultimately is going to lead to the salvation of all of God's people. And that includes Gentiles as well as Jews. All of the Israel of God ultimately will come to salvation. So Paul sees grace in all of this. In fact, when he speaks about election, it's an election of grace. When he speaks about um, an election according to grace, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, let, me get, let me get to the language. It says, it's, he says that... Uh, it's the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And then he speaks about the next generation, Jacob and Esau. And he says uh, that the children not being born, neither having done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God's, God's calling the shots. God has his plan that he's working out. And again, it's not what we would have done. It's not how we would have ordered stuff. Um, but again, all those who get excluded from the grace of the gospel are not seeking the grace of the gospel. It's not like their hearts are open to God at all. Their hearts are uncircumcised. They're saying the last thing they want is to be a servant of the living and true God. God has a purpose in the election of grace. And it's a grace that involves the guilty. It's a grace that involves the, the depraved. It's grace that involves the wayward and how God reaches out to receive them and to bring them to himself. God's work in in a mass of humanity that could care less about his, his, his word and will, to bring to bear his own purpose of love and grace and goodness and faithfulness. And we're sitting back and we're judging. Now, you're not doing it the right way, Lord. Because if you did it the right way, the, gent, the Jews would have been saved and this would have happened and that would have happened. And we're just declaring what we don't know. God's working this out in accordance with his own purpose. And, you know, I think a lot of what Paul is doing here, if I may just offer an opinion, that I, I, it's not an opinion I read in commentaries, and that's, you know, you get used to that, I've gotten used to it. I used to get, I used to get <laughs> my knees to tremble whenever I had an idea that I couldn't find five commentaries that agreed with me with. 
And then I came to the conclusion, well, commentators just agree with other commentators. So they're just perpetrating the same old stuff. Not always, but a lot of it. A lot of it is that way. A lot of them are good readers of the Bible. But um, here's something that I'm thinking about is the fact that, you know, Paul's going to raise a, lot, a bunch of questions here. Um, is there injustice on God's part? He's going to answer, no way, no how, by no means. Um, who has resisted his will? Why does he still find fault? Um, who's, who's, who's making these statements? Who's asking these questions? Again, Paul's not writing this letter to unbelievers. He's not writing this letter to uh, Jews that don't believe the gospel. He's writing this letter to a church. It's Christians that are wrestling with these subjects. It's Christians that are raising these issues. It's Christians that are getting troubled by God's ways with men. And that has its parallel, does it not? Can you think of something in the Old Testament where people raise questions like you have maybe here? Where there's questions... Of what is God doing and why? Well, Abraham and the promise of heaven's uh, son. Um, you know, I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking more of a. Ge- well, that's something that Abraham fully complied with. He's not raising issues or questions with God. I'm thinking of places where that happens. Ezekiel? Um, can you specify a little bit more clearly? Yes, that's true. But I, I don't know how many of them were actually wrestling from the vantage point of faith. Who's, who is it that wrestles from the vantage point of faith, Barbara? Well, I was thinking in the wilderness when they were in the wilderness complaining about the, why have you dragged us here? And, uh, they, well, the, they didn't have any food or anything. Yeah, that's a complaint from the vantage point of unbelief. They've, they've seen the mighty works of God and they think that God's not able to prepare a table for them in the wilderness. I'm thinking of so, a section of the scripture where you find occurring again and again, wrestling from the vantage point of faith, and Tim just said it, the Psalms. The book of the Psalms. Particularly what's called the laments of the Psalms. The complaints of the Psalms. How often the psalmist complains, has the Lord forgotten to be gracious? Where's the Lord in all of this? Lord... You've made these promises to us, and it seems as though these promises have failed. And they're raising those complaints. But they're always raising those complaints from the vantage point, not of unbelief, but of faith. They know God's work utterly trustworthy. They, you see, what they're wrestling with is this. They're wrestling with the character of God that they're convinced is never changes. God is who He is. He is the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth, who keeps, um, you know, keeps grace for, and, uh, and mercy for thousands, um, who is a God who forgives. They know that about God, and they believe that about God. What they're wrestling with is this life situation that they don't know how does that square. How does God's actions with them and towards them, and we might think the acts of God's hand, work together with the attitudes of God's heart? You understand what I'm saying? That sometimes it doesn't seem to be... It's like a kid saying, you spanked me, do you love me? <laughs> How can you love me when you just spanked me? You must hate me, Daddy. No, no, it's, I love you. That's why I spanked you. And, and we want our children to know that we love them. And then any discipline that we give towards them is not out of hatred, it's out of love. So that once we're done with the business of getting the discipline through, they throw their arms around us and say, I love you, Daddy, and we can pray for forgiveness and, and know God's grace. Um, it's, it's, it's not inconsistent with the, the discipline that we bring. Uh, Eric, did you have something you were about to say, or is that just your coffee cup going up and down? I don't know. <laughs> okay. 
So I think that those are the things the psalmists are wrestling with. But they're not wrestling with those things from the vantage point of unbelief, but faith. And that's why so many of those psalms of lament begin with the questioning of God. And the nice thing is, the wonderful thing is, God permits the question. God doesn't say don't question. God doesn't say don't wrestle with this. No, it's fine to wrestle with this. That's what faith does. Faith wrestles with it. But faith wrestles with it with the, with the ultimate end that God is merciful that God is gracious, that God is faithful, that God is a God of steadfast love, and that never ends. And so that, that's the thing that engenders hope and confidence, even when the circumstances haven't changed. Yet I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Even though the circumstances is what they, they've always been, yet how often those psalms change into the uh, you start with questioning and you end in blessing I wonder if Romans 9 through 11 is not a, a kind of a New Testament example of that there's lots of these questions the, the people in the church perhaps are raising them Paul perhaps has wrestled with them but you work through it to the end that praise becomes the final end of the thing Okay, so I think that's how you probably need to read Romans chapter 9 yeah, there are things here that you say, well, how does that square with God's character? Well, it squares with God's character because everything that God does, He does because of who He is. God never does anything that's not in keeping with who He is. All of God's actions are actions of wisdom. They're actions of faithfulness. They're actions of justice. They're actions of love. And even when they appear to us not to be, that just means we don't get it. That's our problem, not God's. That's our misunderstanding, not God's understanding. Hence, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? God is faithful to his own nature. He's faithful to his own attributes. And that engenders in the heart of the believer great hope. And even in the midst, we can't figure this out. The promises were given to the Jews. They haven't believed. Where's the, is, has the word of God failed? Oh, no, no, it can't fail. We're just misunderstanding the word. Now we've got to get on board with understanding the word. And understanding the word tells us that the promises were not given to every single Jew. That every single Jew would come to faith. Now, again, these questions that Paul raises, they begin in verse 14. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Now sometimes when Paul says, what shall we say then? Um, I think we think, I know I've read commentaries that have said, well, Paul is answering objections of the Jews of the synagogue. And I think I might have even said that in previous ventures into the book of Romans. It's a nice idea, but do you know that? We don't know that. We don't know that Paul's bringing synagogue objections into the letter that he's addressed to the church. I think he may be addressing problems that Christians have misunderstandings and mistakes that Christians themselves make. They don't have to be influenced by the synagogue to come to these conclusions. These are just conclusions that we'll come to on our own if we think about the matter long enough. Right? So, what should we say then? Though some of you wrote, might think, is there injustice on God's part? Choosing one, not choosing the other, overlooking this one? Is there injustice on God's part? It's interesting what he says. Um, by no means, for he says to Moses, quoting Deuteronomy, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus, Exodus, I believe, 30, 33, 34, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here the instance is that of Pharaoh. And the fact that God's compassion and mercy is sovereign in its distribution to whom he wills, and that those whom he does not will to show mercy to, such as a Pharaoh, he hardens. But now that whole matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart really does go back to the narrative in the book of Exodus. And we don't have a great deal of time this morning, but I do have some design to get halfway through, or at least mostly through chapter 9. If we need to go back, we will. 
But there's some ten times, I believe, that Pharaoh's hardness of heart is mentioned, and it's usually in the context of the plagues. And I remember going back one time and counting them up. And in those ten, let's say there are ten, there might be, there might not, I'm not really sure. Just offhand, I don't recall. But uh, whatever the number is, about half of those numbers, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the other, it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there, there came to be at least the point at the beginning where Pharaoh was the one that was, he didn't need any help in this. <laughs> he didn't need any help in this. He was perfectly capable to resist God's will. <laughs> perfectly capable to say, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? He was perfectly capable to say, take away their straw and require them the same amount of bricks. He was perfectly capable of doing the worst things imaginable, of putting to death Hebrew infants because he thought his throne was being threatened. He was perfectly capable of every imaginable sin under the sun. But you know, sometimes when troubles come and when judgments come, you do have to begin to consider self-interest. I mean, how far does, the, does Hamas go to not sue for per terms of peace with respect to the devastation of, uh, of Gaza? And I'm not, I'm not commenting on this, on the Israelites, is, is Israel right or wrong in doing what they're doing? I don't want to get into that at all. I think it's horrific what's occurring there. And both sides need, need Christ. Neither side is, I mean, that's what, that's what the world is like without Jesus. That's why the Old Covenant is not sufficient. Because if you take literally what God did to the other nations to secure the land for his ancient people, that means you extinguish 3.5 million uh, residents of Gaza. And who's up for that? I, I don't know. And is that the Jesus answer to this dilemma? Is that the Christian response to that dilemma? No. So the Old Covenant is hardly sufficient to be the thing that brings about answers to the problems of the day. It's the gospel that they need. And both sides need the power of the gospel. Getting back to the Old Testament uh, picture, um, Pharaoh is capable of hardening his heart, but again, these plagues are coming upon his nation. And more and more he's saying... Let them go. Maybe I should. Let them get out of here. This is a question of my own survival. Right? This is a question that's, that's getting close to home. It's getting to be boils on my skin. It's getting to be troubles in my house. And I think the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was so that Pharaoh would still not relent. So that the full power of God would be displayed in his judgment upon them. To where that matter of the firstborn. Again, it was Pharaoh that was killing the infants of the Israelites. And God was going to bring that judgment. You won't let my firstborn go. I'm taking the firstborn of everything that opened the womb in, in Egypt. And again, you, you, can, you can question it's hearts, it's, it's severe. But God, God does not think it's unjust. God does not think it's unjust to deal with a nation of that kind of wickedness knowing that those children growing up in that context will be no better than her father's, maybe even quite worse. So again, it's nothing I would do. There's something God does, but there's nothing we can impugn to evil on God's part. And it's everything that we can say that God has a right to do. That nobody can lift a finger and say, Lord, you've done something unjust or wrong. No, no, look at the injustices of these people in their nation and the wicked deeds that they've performed and the sacrifices they've made of their own infants to their false gods. And uh, let's, let's lay the blame where it belongs. Um, what Pharaoh was doing was in terms of enslaving a people further for his own interests. And God says, I'm going to bring them to liberty, and I'm going to bring them to freedom, and I'm going to do it in this particular way. But this whole matter of the, of, of, of the hardening of the heart, it, it's, it's not the hardening of the heart of people desiring God, desiring Forgiveness, desiring to be open and receptive to the things of God. It's people that have cast off any fear of God, any love for God, any desire to comply with God's will that you find this hardness of heart coming to. I think it's a species. You know, again, I think we have to see 
Paul's statements here, also in the light of other statements of his word, it's, it, it's not a curse that comes uncaused. It's not a judgment that comes that is unmerited. It's, it's, it's certainly merited by the hardness of the heart that Pharaoh already displayed. And I think what you have here in Romans chapter 9 is just a little bit of what you find in Romans chapter 1. And here it's the question of what the Gentiles, having been given by God light through creation, that the invisible things of him are revealed through the things that are made as eternal power and divinity, uh, and yet they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And Paul says that um, claiming to be wise... I'm sorry, he, let's back up. Um, for all the, all the, though they knew God, verse 21, knowing God, they knew God. Not just about him, they knew him. They saw his mighty works. They saw his creation acts. They know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened. Was God making them do this? No, they were doing it really on their own. Their own agency was bringing them down that road of just simply going from bad to worse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They, they, they turned to idolatry. That's what they did. They did it on their own. And, and any prophet that came from God that says, don't do that, they'd probably put to death. Because they were intent upon doing what they wanted to do. Right? Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God hardened their hearts. And how did he do it? By just leaving them to themselves. Just saying, I'm not going to intervene. I'm just going to leave them to get from, go from bad to worse. Maybe there's some aspect of judicial hardening that was active on God's part to bring at least Pharaoh to the place where he wouldn't let the people go. But that meant probably the tenth plague would never come upon the Egyptians. And God says, no, no. In my justice, that's something that will, that will occur. That's something that will occur. So God's actions are always in re- response to the wicked actions of, 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 of human beings. Man is in sin. Man is, goes from the stray from the womb, speaking lies. He, he doesn't have to be... Patrick Harrison said, you don't have to teach people good, uh, evil, they'll do it on their own. You've got to instruct people in the good. And uh, again, it's not as if what God is dealing with is a people seeking him or desiring him or, or pleasing him. And uh, again, you see the hardness of the heart of the Jews. Their heart is hardened. The, uh, he's going to speak about a spirit of stupor that has come upon Israel in uh, chapters 10 and 11. And the spirit of stupor that's come upon them is, is not something that's come just because God doesn't want them to come to him. It's because they won't, don't want to come to him. It's an interesting thing how um, when Jesus speaks of the plight of unbelief that he sees around him, um, he doesn't say, well, there's really nothing I can do about it because that's just the depravity of man at work, so let's not be all that concerned about it. But that's just how things go. Let God do what he wants to do. And that was the position that hyper-Calvinists would take in, in, in um, England when William Carey wanted to begin his ministry uh, or began to uh, push towards having an interest in the conversion of, of the heathen of the nations that didn't know God. And uh, you know, the story was that he was told that it was an interesting sermon that he preached from Isaiah 54. We don't have a copy of that sermon, but he preached a sermon from Isaiah 54 about the lengthening of the tents of, you know, of, uh, of the people of God. Um, and he was told that uh, when the Lord God's willing to convert the heathen, he'll do it. He'll do it without your help or mine. <laughs> And of course, that was not Carrie's understanding of the matter at all. And uh, look at how the Lord Jesus speaks. It's John chapter 5.
let me read it. Let me just start to read it from, I'm not really coming upon the verse I want to get, but it's, I know it's here. So let's, so let's look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has borne him witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from people. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and do not receive, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And uh, do not um, seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do you not think that I'll accuse you to the Father? There's one that accuses you, Moses, on whom you believe. Um, if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words? But the point is, Jesus is, doesn't stop speaking to them. He doesn't stop reproving them. He doesn't stop rebuking them. And then, I guess it's earlier on that he says, that I speak these words to you, that you might be saved. Where exactly is that? Anybody see that? Yeah, it's up in 34. 34? No, I didn't go far enough back. Okay, you sent to John... He's borne witness of the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. <laughs> you know, Jesus is concerned about their salvation. He's going to say these things to them for their salvation. He knows their hearts. He knows what's in man. That came earlier. He didn't have any need for anybody to testify about man because he himself knew what was in man. And he knew these people were seeking glory from one another. They didn't have the love of God in them. He knew everything about their spiritual state, their spiritual condition. And yet he says, oh, okay, I guess the, the thing to do is just not to speak any longer. Just to go on to find a people somewhere that are the elect. No. He stands among these people that he has no reason to believe or elect at all. And he says, to you, I speak these words that you may be saved. I have your salvation in my heart. That's how we're to preach the gospel to the lost. Not the reason, well, maybe they're not elect. Or maybe they're too hard-hearted. I know there are people who could have thought that about me when I was an unbeliever. Could have well just passed me by. So why bother with him? Let's look for some more, 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 likely person to come to faith than, than that guy and yet God had his own will and purpose and again it's, it's grace from beginning to last with all of us and you know the point is we just don't give up on people because their hearts are hard um, let God do the hardening lets us endeavor to do what we can to break into the darkness to preach his word and then who knows? Paul was killing Christians. And then he became, he who was the chief of sinners, became the model of a God who shows mercy. So you just never know what God's going to do. So what I'm saying is that there's nothing in this passage that tells us that we're not to be pursuing the lost. That we're not to be enthusiastically energetic about the salvation of the lost and pray, praying for the salvation of the lost even when we see unbelief abounding to be able to say yes I have sorrow I have anguish in my heart but yet I have something else in the process I have hope I have hope in the midst of all of my lamentations about what God's doing in the world and what this might mean in terms of his promises and whether there's injustice on his part or um, why he still finds fault with people that still remain in their sins. Let me work it through in faith. Let me do it like the lamentations were done. Bringing these objections, bringing these concerns, bringing these prayers before the eye of the God of mercy and grace and coming away like the psalmist did. There's hope in God. I will yet praise him. There was still hope in God. There's still hope for the salvation of Israel. There's still hope that those that have rejected the gospel time without number may yet have that, that same gospel be the, for them what it's been to me. Maybe I believed it the first time I heard it. You're blessed. But there's many that don't. And there's many that are saved later in life. And yet to them, as well as to you, 
The gospel has become the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Well, we didn't get through the passage. Read through it. Have your questions already. I'm going to tell you, I can't answer them all. Nobody can. And we have to resolve in faith what we can't understand. But don't then cut it out of your Bibles because it does tell us something very important about God. He works in the world in accordance with his nature of justice and wisdom and goodness and grace and trustworthiness and constant love. Let's trust him to do it right, to do it well, and to be co-workers together with him in the work that he's given us to do. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that in the midst of what we don't understand, yet we can believe, in the midst of what we don't have clear answers to, we can yet trust and look to you as the source of all wisdom and the source of all purpose that's good and 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 we'd be able to say even as people who saw Jesus in the flesh he has done all things well that we would be able to come to that conclusion and, and not turn away from hope and not turn away from zealous endeavors to seek the salvation of the lost but by your power and grace to pray more and testify more and show forth the praises of the God who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous life, even more than we've done before, because we know that you are the God who is in control, and you are the God who will do have your will done, and you are the God who has purposed glorious victories of your goodness and love in and through Christ, and you will bring in your people, and all Israel will be saved, and all of the people of God will rejoice with everlasting joy in your presence. So we ask you to hear our prayers, we ask you to bless your people, and we ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into the morning hour of worship, as we call upon your name and ask for these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.